Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Expressions of gender play an important role in politics. From the clothes someone wears to whether or not they cry in public, the way a leader is perceived when it comes to gender can be what makes or breaks their career. Hypermasculine leaders have grabbed headlines in the last few years. Putin, Trump, Bolsonaro, Erdogan. All of them employ the rhetoric of masculinity in public discourse and ultimately, often, policy. It's worth asking, is this a new trend and what does it mean for the ones living in these countries, especially women and LGBTQ individuals? To talk about this and more, I'm joined today by Kelly Fisher and Johanna Rocke Elvebakken. Kelly is a research assistant at Prio, where his main research interests are gender and masculinities and their intersection with a number of topics, including peace and security and migration. He wrote his master's thesis on the role of gender and masculinities in shaping Polish men's migration process living in Oslo. Kelly is helping to coordinate an initiative at Prio this fall, which seeks to build out more research that focuses on men and masculinities. Johanna is the coordinator for the Prio Center on Gender, Peace, and Security. In January 2022, she's starting a PhD at the University of Oslo on the Euro War Child Project. The project aims to explore the experiences and needs of three generations of children born of war in Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly and Johanna. I'm glad that you're here. We're going to talk about masculinity, gender, women, heads of state, and LGBTQ issues. So we have a lot to cover in the next 25-ish minutes. Kelly, I'm going to start with you. Um, you wrote a blog post titled The Differing Masculinities of Trump and Biden. And this was back in January 2021, right when um, Biden was about to be inaugurated as new president of the United States. And you were kind of comparing and contrasting the ways that they express their masculinity. Can you give, just give a quick recap, first of all, of, of uh, your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's helpful here just to kind of kick off and say, you know, what we mean by masculinity here and kind of what I'm referring to. Uh, and with that kind of what are like the different expectations and norms and beliefs uh, and actions that are associated with men, both at an individual level, but also at a more societal, larger level. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. So some of the, the main points I highlighted uh, in that pod or in that blog post was uh, some of the key differences that we really saw between uh, Trump and Biden uh and there's a lot of them, <laughs> but especially in terms of yeah how they uh, portrayed themselves as men. And I think kind of starting with Trump, where uh, he very much um, portrayed himself as this fighter, this person who's more compa- uh, combative, uh, and also in that how he expressed uh, what it means to be a man, he really played into or and played up what are the differences between uh, a man, men and women's roles in a society. Uh, so and then in comparison, Biden. Uh, being less competitive in that regard and very much portraying himself as being more empathetic or being uh, more of a team player, player, uh, more diplomatic. Biden, of course, has experienced a lot of tragedy in his life, which has probably also contributed to his image as being a more, yeah, like you say, sort of empathetic and emotional leader. Um, but we've also seen that with previous uh, Democratic leaders like um, Obama, for example, uh, kind of showing more emotion, even crying sometimes. Uh, do you think that this, in, at least in the U.S., and then we're going to move on to a more global level, do you think in the U.S. that this is a party, a sort of a partisan issue almost, this this masculine-feminine um, mm. dichotomy? Mm. 
Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think what is what is interesting is that uh, again, kind of if Trump and uh, Biden provide really good uh, ways to kind of compare the differences between uh, what it is about uh, being a man or what they represent about a certain way of being a man in the U.S. And I think, uh, again, kind of comparing uh, these differences between Trump and Biden, that uh, Trump very much playing up, there are very certain ways of... Uh, of being a man and what should and shouldn't be allowed and in that way almost being exclusionary. And I think, uh, whereas with Biden and I guess more generally with the democratic party where it is kind of portraying itself as this party of being more, uh, inclusive. And I think uh, you can really see that in terms of who are the cabinet members and who are the people that they try and include in the, um, in their government. And I think Biden has really, if we're again, thinking about the, in the blog post that I wrote, I said, you know, what implications this might have about the differences between uh, Trump and Biden. Uh, there can be a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of ways that this might impact how they they lead the country. And with Biden, we've seen that he's selected one of the most uh, diverse cabinets and nominated lots of uh, uh, lots of women. Uh, the first openly trans member to uh, to the um, a federal or a, a cabinet position. Uh, and also, uh, in terms of um, putting out strategies and plans, um, I know that the White House just released its first ever gender equity and gender equality plan just mm. uh, at the end of October. So really um, prioritizing uh, issues regarding gender equality. Um, yeah. And of course, it's hard to avoid the topic of the pandemic and coronavirus and COVID um, when we when we talk about world leaders, because the last yeah, almost two years really has been sort of consumed by that. And in your blog post, you referenced um, a really interesting relationship between masculinity and COVID and specifically masks. Um, when you were quoting a uh, Republican pundit who tweeted that Biden might as well carry a purse with that mask. So this idea of like, somehow you're more resilient or masculine if you don't believe in COVID. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what, what she's implying there, but Johanna, I want to ask you to touch on this because um, you've written a little bit about this and also observed um, some of the trends over the last couple of years. We'll talk about some of the other trends in a minute, but first of all, just starting with the pandemic, what, what have we seen from male and female heads of state? Yeah, first of all, I will just say that I completely agree with the definitions that uh, Kelly had. And I think masculinity and hypermasculinity that I will talk about later and maybe define a bit more. Uh, corona is just a perfect example <laughs> mm. uh, in a way because it is a pandemic. It's a health crisis. Of course, it's an economical crisis as well. There's many crises within uh, a pandemic. But what we see with leaders like Trump is that they're over-militarizing their response to the pandemic. So, for instance, Trump has referred to um, the the coronavirus as a war uh, and he's also said that uh, we're at war with a horrible invisible enemy mm. uh, and I'm really wondering how can you fight a health crisis with this like over militaristic response and he has also referred to himself as a wartime president and really like making this into something that can be solved by military means is really removing things like masks as being a relevant response. Uh, and another thing that I would also like to highlight is by referring to something as a war, 
you're saying that there must be some kind of enemy. Of course, he's saying it's a invisible enemy, uh, but we have seen that it's been a lot of violence and hate speech, or maybe not violence, but at least hate speech, uh, against Asian Americans. There has been violence. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just didn't have a yeah. concrete example yeah, of has. that, but I'm very sad to hear that. And this is just a practical example of what this kind of rhetoric leads to. So mm. what I would also like to touch upon later is that words are not just words. Mm -hmm. they, they lead to policy as well. Uh, and of course, you can say that all these or leaders that have referred to Corona as a war is not just these hyper-masculine leaders that have done that. Uh, for instance, in Norway, also, we have used the term frontline worker mm. uh, of uh, healthcare workers. And uh, I think most countries have said that it's a war against the pandemic. But mm. it's just like we really need to look at what this means mm. in practice. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, I do think that that, um, yeah, perhaps masculine, masculinized language also spans political parties as well, whether people realize it or not. Um, just to take a little bit of a trite example, but I think it's actually quite illustrative. In uh, Taylor Swift's uh, latest album, she wrote a song <laughs> about the pandemic where she actually compared it to her, uh, I think, great grandfather fighting in World War One. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, that is the the rhetoric and also maybe really how some of these health care workers in particular do feel. But as you said, this can lead to um, some interesting responses. And so with that, I want to follow up and ask about this comparison of female and male uh, world leaders, um, maybe like four months after the pandemic had really hit people were saying that female world leaders, had, their countries had done the best. I mean, the most obvious example would be New Zealand, but Norway was also one of those countries. Uh, what does that kind of imply about, both about male and female heads of state? Um, Johanna, you can start, but I know Kelly also, you have some thoughts on this. Uh, I wonder if I will actually let Kelly start. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I know uh, for me, this is actually one of the reasons why I got interested in writing this uh, blog post in the first place, because as you were talking about Indigo, there was a lot of news coverage about how female heads of state were handling uh, COVID so much better and kind of this uh, portrayal or this narrative around oh, like gender, like where does this kind of fit into it and uh, gender, it being seen relevant for female heads of state. Um and how they were handling uh, uh, COVID. But on the flip side of that, as that was ongoing, we also saw um, a few different countries where COVID was being quite poorly handled, uh, including uh, Brazil, uh, the UK, and the United States. And what I found really interesting is that all three of those uh, places also have leaders, Bolsonaro, uh, Trump, and Johnson, who you can say very much uh, idolize kind of hyper-masculine traits. Uh, and in that, they were very much downplaying the risks of COVID, saying that it's uh, not an issue, you know, and um, kind of pushing the blame away also. And I think that was very interesting because there wasn't as much news coverage about that, but also in that uh, looking at gender is just as relevant in terms of how these male heads of state were uh, poorly handling COVID. And I think that just feeds into a larger uh, topic in general, where uh, when we talk about gender, it's seen as more relevant for women, but it's not mm -hmm. as often seen as relevant for men. And that uh, I think was also really evident with this uh, news news coverage. Hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Kelly. I also think it's um, really interesting what you're saying about how gender is more relevant for women. And mm. 
I think is a very good point that what some of the male leaders that have handled Corona badly, what they actually share are some of these hyper-masculine traits. Mm. Uh, another thing that I would really like to highlight is just that there are so few women leaders compared mm. to male leaders in mm. the world. So, for instance, this year in in August 2021, it was only 22 uh, female head of states out of all the members in the UN. So 22 out of 193, <laughs> which, yeah. al- which also really do something. We work at the research institute, so the sample is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and another thing when it comes to this is just like, uh, you were asking us when we were preparing Indigo to look at the differences between men and women, and my topic was hypermasculinity. And then I was just Googling out of interest, like hyperfemininity. Mm. Mm. And of course, that is, a, that is a term and it has been done research on it, but I couldn't find anything on hyperfeminine leaders. Mm. Mm. Uh, of course, some of the traits you were mentioning earlier when comparing Trump and Biden, Kelly, mm. Uh, about how maybe you could say that Biden has more, like he's more into diplomacy mm. as a and maybe kind of meeting on the middle. Mm. You could say that might be a kind of feminine trait, mm. but at the same time, I would say that's also just a good politician, right? Exactly, that's yeah. someone who's doing yeah. their job. <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting that we don't really have the same sample when it comes to women Hmm. as we do with men also when handling the corona pandemic Hmm. i'm wondering if i can ask you well either one of you to touch on kind of this idea of care of heads of state caring for their citizens because i think that's something that is often associated with women i mean women in the household uh, even women who work are kind of in a lot of ways, and even in, in quite equal societies like Norway, expected to um, care for their children, care for their partners. Um, so when we talk about, yeah, hyper-masculine or perhaps <laughs> hyper-feminine, if we start using that term, um, heads of state, what kinds of cultures of care do we see in those in those different countries? I was thinking one thing that is not directly answering your question, so maybe it fits more into the earlier narrative that we were discussing, but when talking about women, of course, we don't have that many female leaders or women leaders in politics, but we have female voters. Hmm. Uh, So a lot of women are voting for leaders that want to actually retract their rights Hmm. as individuals. Uh, and I think this is also interesting when looking at uh, the corona pandemic. Like women continue to vote for leaders that haven't handled the corona pandemic hmm. in a way that have benefited them or maybe haven't like dealt with domestic violence, for instance, hmm. uh, as, a, as a very like a result of uh, continuous lockdowns. Um, <laughs> I, as a Norwegian, I find this thing about like the ethics of or leaders that are caring a bit interesting because I would also say that Jens Stoltenberg who's now leading NATO he's an example of someone I would say is a caring leader uh, also even though he's a man so mm. we have these examples of of men that also have these traits for instance when uh, after the terrorist attack in Norway he was publicly crying he was like supporting people very similar to the to the response in New Zealand mm. after the terrorist attack there. That was later in time. Mm. Uh, 
And I think as a Scandinavian person, you don't really, or a Norwegian person, you don't react to that as not manly. Right. Uh, while in other countries, maybe you would, and maybe that wouldn't be seen as, as a good response. Mm. Hmm. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a really interesting question, uh, kind of about where does, uh, where does care fit into this? Um, and I think, as you point out, uh, uh, while different societies such as if we're talking about Norway and the US in terms of having access or the ability to uh, be a caregiver or the support for that, even just in the sense of having paid paternity leave uh, in the beginning and what a struggle that is still in the US to try and get that implemented. Um, But I think something that's kind of interesting that's ongoing right now, again, kind of fitting into this of uh, how Biden, again, is trying to portray himself as this more empathetic or caring leader. And I believe his administration has uh, for people who are in his cabinet or who work in the federal uh, department, they now have access to paid uh, 12 weeks of paid uh, care leave, I believe, for having a child. And I know that actually, um, oh, I'm forgetting his uh, his name, the mayor from Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Mm. Uh, he actually just took uh, paid care leave for uh, the child that him and his uh, partner adopted. Oh. And I know that there was a lot of kind of interesting conversations around that because one, it's like the first time I think that a man in such a prominent role in the Mm. government has taken uh, that type of uh, carrying leave. So kind of even um, these types of uh, symbolic, you know, the symbolism of something such as that Mm. uh, and what role that might play just more broadly in the U S of shifting ideas of um, being uh, a caregiver. Mm. Um, Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that about Pete Buttigieg. Uh, I'd like to move on now to LGBTQ rights and trends that we've seen related to, uh, especially related to these hyper-masculine heads of state. Um, Now, obviously, uh, (laughs) LGBTQ rights have generally improved in the world over the last decades. However, um, it's interesting to look at certain countries and see that actually there has been a first an improvement and then actually a quite drastic downward trend. I'm, I'm thinking in particular here of Russia. Um, Johanna, you have written about this and, and researched a little bit. What do we observe in terms of, of these trends and what kind of backlash has there been against LGBTQ citizens? Uh, thank you so much for that question, Indigo. First, I would really like to define what kind of a hyper-masculine head of state might be. That's great. Uh, just because that really relates to answering your mm. question. Mm. And you could say a lot about hyper-masculinity, but I think what I would like to say about it when it comes to world leaders is that it's not random. It's actually a strategy. And it's a way of portraying yourself towards your your voters if your country is democratic, but also if it's an authoritarian regime. It's like a way of really like overplaying the traits that are believed to be masculine in your leadership. Uh, and Kelly touched upon some of those leaders that I would like to say a bit about earlier mm. as well. And what these leaders have in common, they have a lot in common. They are not just masculine. And we also have some some women leaders, since you asked about that earlier in the go, that show some of the same traits. However, they are not playing on their femininity. Mm. They are more like authoritarian, for instance, or really far left or far right. But what hyper-masculine leaders have in common is that they are discriminating women and uh, they are being hateful towards women and women's rights. And the same goes for LGBT persons. 
like both nationally and internationally. Uh, and then the last thing, which we touched upon when discussing the um, corona pandemic, is that um, they believe they really believe in violence mm-hmm. <laughs> and the military as a good way of solving all kinds of issues, right. not just military issues. And they also believe that violence is manly and that that is a trait that is important as a leader to have. And they normalize violence. So when talking about LGBT persons, we have had this backlash in the last 10 years or so, I would say. Uh, And it's very big differences between countries and regions. And while women's rights have also experienced a backlash, I would say maybe that for LGBT rights, it's more like it's been standing still and then it's been pushed back. Mm. So they didn't have the same kinds of improvements that women's rights had in the 1990s and early 2000s. But... At the same time, in some countries, for instance, Brazil, um, uh, same-sex marriage were actually became legal in 2013, not that long ago at all. Mm. Um, and there were also, in 2018, um, you could change your gender legally, so transgender pers- people could change their gender and name. Uh, but now you see this like really big hate towards LGBT persons with uh, Bolsonaro. And he have actually, one thing is what he says. Mm. So he has, for instance, said that he would rather have a dead son than a gay son. And he has also said that if he's, uh, these are just examples. There are mm. thousands of examples yeah. of things he have said. But he have also said that if he saw two men kissing on the street, he would beat them up. And he's actually encouraging his population to do the same. So you have gone from uh, LGBT persons in Brazil really getting their rights recognized, basic human rights recognized, to now seeing a lot of violence against LGBT persons and hate speech and rhetorics. Mm. Uh, And also their legal rights being changed. So it's not just about words, it's also about practice. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you said earlier that mas- masculine, uh, hyper-masculine leaders saying things can also lead then to policy and real policy effects that um, can really destroy people's lives. As you were talking, I was also thinking about your point about um, women voting against their own interests, which, of course, happens. I mean, uh, we see it all the time in, in elections. And I think this also ties into the LGBTQ question um, in terms of a lot of these heads of state are sort of framing it as gender roles or gender norms that they want to uphold and that uh, LGBTQ citizens are threatening those norms. And maybe that's, I I think, I'm sure that there's been a lot of research on this, but that's one of the reasons that some women vote seemingly against their own interests because they they want to uphold Hmm. um, those norms for cisgender women. Yeah, yeah, Kelly, go ahead. Yeah, and just hopping in there, because I think one of the really important things to think about, especially when it comes to like, uh, what exactly it is to be a man or like the ideas of masculinity in a society, uh, it usually needs something to point to and say, this is not what it means. Uh, you know, something that it's comparing itself Mm. to and portraying as, uh, inferior to. Um, and in this regard, very often that, uh, is, um, in connection to groups, um, who identify as LGBTQ, 
uh, plus. So I think especially when it comes to hyper-masculine uh, leaders who are really trying to portray themselves as a certain way of being a man and, and very much lean into manly ideals, then they even more lean into what types of things they portray as being unmanly or against it. So I think um, there's very much a, a good, uh, a strong, you know, relationship between those hyper-masculine leaders and then uh, discrimination against uh, LGBTQ plus groups. So. Hmm. I completely agree with Kelly, and I would also like to add that many hyper-masculine leaders, they play women and LGBT plus persons up against each other. Mm. Yeah. So they are actually retracting rights for both, if you can say, groups. Of course, these are mm. just like not just one thing, but women are not just one thing, LGBT yes, persons yeah. are just not one thing. But uh, I think a really good example of a leader that play women and uh, LGBT persons up against each other is uh, Erdogan mm. in Turkey mm. because ironically enough uh, something called the Istanbul Convention it was signed in Turkey in 2011 and it's a convention by the Council of Europe uh, that has to do with uh, violence against women both domestically and also in the public and all kinds of violence against women and it's signed by many European countries in Istanbul <laughs> Uh, where Erdogan was one of the forefront uh, leaders pushing for this uh, convention, uh, so much so that he invited all these leaders to sign it in Istanbul. <laughs> uh, and now he's retra he just retracts. Mm. Uh, and his reason for not wanting to be part of the Istanbul convention anymore is he's saying that now this is becoming a tool for LGBT persons. He's not using that term because he's not legitimizing Mm. Uh, LGBT persons at all um, yeah. but he's saying that it has gone from being something that was there to protect women to being used by LGBT persons and mm. therefore he did not want to be part of it anymore mm. Mm. <laughs> so by doing that uh, when looking at women in Turkey they might also blame right. you know LGBT mm. persons for why some for why some of their rights is retracted. Mm. So it's a very interesting mm. and unfortunate play out of mm. such a mm -hmm. of such a treaty. Mm. Kind of rounding off here, I wanted to finish with some reflections on something you sort of mentioned in passing, Johanna, which is the intersections between these different identities. Um, in Norway, this is kind of interesting that. Um, FRP, the um, Progress Party, which is quite conservative for people who don't know, Progress probably sounds like the opposite, um, but they're, they're very conservative. And um, a few years ago, they, they sort of changed their rhetoric about LGBTQ issues to be um, supposedly pro-LGBTQ, but using um, anti-immigrant rhetoric. So there was a lot of mm. sort of... Um, anti-Islam, you know, if immigrants come, your rights will be retracted, um, this kind of rhetoric. And, and that was a bit of a switch, actually. And the reason I thought of this was because, Johanna, when you were talking about there can be intersections, there can be overlap, of course, there are LGBTQ immigrants, there are Muslims who are queer. Um, so the reason I'm, I'm curious about your reflections on this is because this has been talked about as well with gender peace and security research, mm -hmm. which formerly was more often called Women, Peace, and Security. Johanna, you wrote about this in one of the pieces that, that you um, sent me recently. Can you just give me your reflections on this? Since both of you are, are working in this area and grounding it again now a little bit more in the research and the, the way that we talk about these things in the research field, um, what are your reflections on these, these overlaps and 
the diversity of, of these groups that we're actually looking at here. Um, you touched upon a lot of things in your questions, Indigo. Uh, so I would maybe like to clarify something about the what you call the diversity that is implied by calling it gender, peace and security versus women, peace and security. I think the gender, peace and security um, like way of framing it is something that's maybe used more in research and to a certain extent by civil society. But if you look at the UN Security Council, for example, where the uh, Women, Peace and Security agenda comes from, they never use that term mm-hmm. uh, in the Security Council. And LGBT rights have, or the role of LGBT plus in conflict has never been introduced as a topic the same way Women, Peace and Security has been introduced. Uh, so I think by a research institution, for instance, like PRIO to call a center, center gender peace and security, the way I'm understanding it is that it's more like a, an opening up of looking at gender identities and also looking at, for instance, masculinity, mm-hmm. like Kelly has introduced as a topic to PRIO now. Uh, with this internal uh, strategic initiative as something that we should focus on Mm. and as something that is part of the picture. However, I don't really see that being part of the international security agendas. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, going off that, um, it's a really great question, a great point. And uh, it just points to how we do need to be more sensitive and more aware when we're doing our research of all kind of these different intersecting identities and how uh, they in different situations lead to different vulnerabilities or um, different challenges for different groups in the society. And that's relevant uh, in a lot of a lot of different uh, fields of research. Um, I think kind of going off Johanna's point, I think there definitely is uh, a lot more that can kind of be brought out and thought about in regards to um, where do uh, where does sexual orientation and LGBTQ plus identities fit into gender peace and security? I think that's definitely something uh, that can be built upon and looked at more. Uh, just because, as Johanna has pointed out, it's you know as of now it, it hasn't it hasn't been introduced uh, in the UN, and so there's definitely a lot of room in uh, space for progress in regards to that. It actually is this group, I think it's called Friends of LGBT or mm. something like that. And Norway is part of it, but it's more in the General Assembly of the UN. It's not at the Security Council side. And the only time LGBT rights have been brought up in any way uh, in the Security Council was by the US. But it was not in the council itself. It was at a, some press conferences and it had to do with ISIS or Daesh mm. and how they were treating LGBT persons. Interesting. Well, obviously a lot of um, progress to be made, but I really appreciate your thoughts and reflections today. Thank you both for talking with me and uh, and educating me and the listeners on gender and masculinities and LGBTQ issues in these these topics. Thank you. Thanks, Indigo. A treat to be on the podcast with this dream team, I have to say, also for me. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger. Additional editing by Fuka Iwase. Music by Martha Nenemal.